The containment of AI must be possible, but is that a possibility? Well, Mustafa Soliman is convinced there is no other option, and that's what I'm going to be talking about today. For those of you who may not have followed my content, or this may be the first video you see of mine, I'm Christopher Lind. Professionally, I'm a tech analyst, I'm an advisor, and an HR executive. On the personal front, I'm a husband and father of seven, but no matter where I am, I always find myself living at the intersection of business, technology, and the human experience. This week, I'm responding to another recent interview hosted by Stephen Bartlett, who, and he talks with Mustafa Suleiman, who uh, he is the former, well, he is the co-founder of Google's DeepMind. So he's an AI technical expert, very interesting to listen to. I've listened to a fair amount of his stuff. And if you haven't listened to Diary of a CEO by Stephen Bartlett, it's one worth checking out. I don't listen to them all. Some of the topics are a little too off the wall for me, but I find I do listen to the ones I find interesting. It's a long form podcast, so make sure you block off some time. And I've done some other response videos to these. I did a couple, one a few weeks ago in response to Sam Harris talking about AI. He's a philosopher. And I also did one in response to Mo Goddat's conversation with Stephen. And um, very interesting, deep conversations on the topic of AI and where it's going. This week, as I dig into it, again, going to take another perspective on where it's at. But like the others, I'm going to be reacting to specific parts of the conversation to shine another light on it. Because in pretty much every conversation that I've heard on the AI topic, we're coming from wildly different worldviews. And while I haven't had a chance to have conversations with these folks individually, you can see how the worldviews shape the reasoning behind this, and even some of where we think this is going to go. Now, if you want to catch the original conversation, I will put a link in the comments. It is almost two hours, so you need to block off some time. This one, I'm just recording it now, so I don't know what the ultimate length will be, but if history is an indicator, this will also be fairly long. But the good news is, for those who may not be quite as geeky in this space as I am, both of these episodes are, they have chapters. So if there are specific things that you're interested in jumping into, you can check out those if you are not familiar with YouTube's chapter capability. But I would recommend listening to obviously the full version of mine, but also the full version of Stephen Bartlett's as well. Now, one thing I will say before getting into some of the different clips from here is one of the really impactful things I appreciated about this was there's a red thread throughout this entire conversation that Mustafa has with Stephen. And it is this almost ecclesiastical reality of the beauty and terror of where we're going. And he talks a lot about it throughout this. We talk, he talks about the fact that yes, there is a frightening reality and yet there's almost so much beauty within that. And again, it just brought a lot of reflections to me. Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And that theme is really deep throughout a lot of this, albeit I don't think in any way, shape or form, at least to my knowledge, either of them are coming from that worldview. So that was something that I think you'll see here. It doesn't really, I wouldn't say it picks on either one of those. It's either, you know, a lot of these conversations are either it's all terrible or it's all wonderful and everything terrible is nonsense. And this almost paradoxically says, well, it's both. 
Something else as I was watching the video and looking through some of the comments, there are a lot of comments from commentators on almost a cynicism about some of these big names who are speaking about it and the fact that they made loads of cash going out and creating what has the potential to be ultimate chaos. And now they're flipping and making loads of cash going out trying to solve for it. And I appreciate that there's some truth in that. If you're listening to this and you're going, yeah, you know, that's how I feel about it. I completely see where that comes from. And in some ways, I definitely think there's some truth to it. I don't get the sense, at least from some of the folks that I've responded to, that that's necessarily the intent of what's happened. I think right now, especially, and they talk about this in here, is it is so easy to demonize people to other people and I don't get the sense that that really was what's going on here. What's happening with AI was that some diabolical people thought, you know what, I'm going to create some world ending technology and then I'm going to take it to a scale that'll be uncontrollable. And then I'm going to use all my resources to fight it back. I really think a lot of people set out to do really good things. And I think Mustafa is an example of that. He really seems to have gotten into this because he saw the potential of this. But I think what it highlights is how broken our world is and how even with the best of intentions, things can go out of control or in ways that you never anticipated. And they adapt and we adapt. And that's exactly what they've done. So I see a lot of that commentary. I think it's very easy to just kind of point the finger at that. And again, I acknowledge that there's some truth to that. Well, at the same time going, I think there's a lot more complexity to that. And that's why I enjoy long form conversations like this, where in many ways they plumb the depths of what we're really dealing with right now, because like it or not, it is an inevitability. There is no way out of this. There's no way around it. That is a consistent theme throughout this is we're not going to hit stop or rewind and go back. There's just no way we can possibly do it for a lot of the reasons that they unpack in this conversation. So the question then becomes, what are we going to do about it? So I want to start first up with this section of the conversation where Steven's talking with him and he presses Mustafa on his shift in perspective. And I appreciated Mustafa opens by saying, you know what, I was at one point terrified of this whole thing. So let's check this out and then I'll give some additional thoughts on here. I would say in the past, it would have been petrified. And I think that over time, as you really think through the consequences and the pros and cons and the trajectory that we're on, you adapt and you understand that actually there is something incredibly inevitable about this trajectory and that we have to wrap our arms around it and guide it and control it as a collective species, as, a, as humanity. And I think the more you realize how much influence we collectively can have over this outcome, the more empowering it is. Because on the face of it, this is really going to be the tool that helps us tackle all the challenges that we're facing as a species, right? We need to fix water desalination. We need to grow food 100x cheaper than we currently do. We need renewable energy to be you know, ubiquitous and everywhere in our lives. We need to adapt to climate change. Everywhere you look, in the next 50 years, we have to do more with less. And there are very, very few proposals, let alone practical solutions for how we get there. Training machines to help us 
as aides, scientific research partners, inventors, creators is absolutely essential. And so the upside is phenomenal. It's enormous. But AI isn't just a thing. It's not an inevitable. So I'm going to stop it there um, because I think there are some really great things about what he said there. And there's a lot that I agree with. So you heard in there him talk about the fact that this is an inevitability. And I very much agree with that, that this is an inevitability for you know where we're going to go and what things are going to be. And I agree very much that there is a need and that AI can be a fantastic augmentation to what we need to do. And like you said, when I look at some of the big existential problems that we have in the world, I would agree that AI really does seem like it's our best shot. And it really, in many of the instances he talks about, is the only plausible offer that we have to try and solve some of these things. It's the only way we can scale and solve some of these big challenges. So I agree with that. Where I get a little bit nervous, and I think one of the things, not nervous, but that we need to watch is what he's talking about runs the risk of building a foundation of setting AI up and giving us all a bit of a savior complex to artificial intelligence. And this isn't unique to AI. We fall victim to this all the time. We see this in politics. We see this in education. We see this in money, this idea. And there are plenty of things out there that present themselves as this is the only way it will be your savior. And subtly, we may not even realize it, but we start to build this into our worldview that the solution to our problems is insert whatever that is. And AI is quickly establishing a case to become that. And I think we need to be really careful about that because AI will not save us. And this is where worldview collision, and he doesn't come out and say that, that AI is the savior of the world. But in many ways, this is the foundation that's being built around AI right now is that, well, AI will save us. It'll have enough knowledge. It can move fast enough. It'll all, Every problem that we may ever have in human existence can be solved from artificial by artificial intelligence. And I think we need to be really careful of that. And that's not me just cautioning about AI, but look at what has happened when we do that with anything else. When we put our faith in government or our own experience or our knowledge or money or whatever, it always falls short. And so for me, obviously coming from a biblical worldview, my confidence ultimately is not in humanity or anything we can create, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's money, whatever those things, but in how God will ultimately work through humanity, which is why I think, will AI play a leading role in some of the creative and wonderful solutions to some of the world's biggest problems right now? Yes, I think it will, but I think we need to be cautious and careful that that doesn't lead us to believing that AI will be our savior. And I think that is a risk. And I think it's not just a risk. I think there are going to be people that start to buy into this and start to believe it. And it is starting to be fed into the water. And it's something that I tend to call out and go, be careful because AI can solve things, but it's not going to save you. It will not save every problem that has ever existed. And we need to be mindful of that because if we start, as soon, we do it subtly, 
But over time, we start to build this belief. And before we know it, we've put our hope in something that will ultimately let us down. And I think we just need to be really careful because then when you're let down, it's that much harder, especially something like this with some of the promises that are being made. Something else he discusses in here is the fact that we're going to need to take the reins or have it handed to us. And this theme is again discussed throughout that this is an inevitability. Everyone has a role. We all can play a role in this. And I think it's a really good message. And I would encourage anybody who watches or listens to this to recognize that you have a role. You may go, well, I'm not an AI person. Well, yeah, but everyone is going to play a role and your role may be really unique. And But you need to figure out what that is because if you don't, this will be handed to you. Or just like I was talking before, the savior complex, it will subtly begin creeping into the water and the air around you, which it already is. And it will start shaping you and molding you in a way and you don't even realize it. So this whole idea that you either need to be aware of it, be conscious and intentional about what you're doing about it, or it will change you. And that's an inevitability. And you have an opportunity right now to do more than I think many people are um, right now. So anyway, so there's that piece. All right, so I want to add this one up here. This next piece, he's talking about the pace of change. And I'll show this here, and then I'll give a few other additional thoughts to it. In fact, it was quite predictable in hindsight, the trajectory that we were on. More compute plus vast amounts of data has enabled us within a decade to go from predicting black and white digits, generating new versions of those images, to now generating unbelievable photorealistic, not just images, but videos, novel videos, with a simple natural language instruction or a prompt. What has surprised you? You said you referred to that as predictable, but what has surprised you about what's happened over the last decade? So I think what was predictable to me back then was the generation of images and of audio. Um, because the structure of an image is locally contained. So pixels that are near one another create straight lines and edges and corners, and then eventually they create eyebrows and noses and eyes and faces and entire scenes. And I could just intuitively, in a very simplistic way, I could get my head around the fact that, okay, well, we're predicting these number sevens. You can imagine how you then can expand that out to entire images, maybe even to videos, maybe you know, to audio too. You know, what I said you know, a couple of seconds ago is connected in phoneme space in the spectrogram. But what was much more surprising to me was that those same methods for generation applied in the space of language. You know, language seems like such a different abstract space of ideas. When I say like the cat sat on the, most people would probably predict mat, right? But it could be table, car, chair, tree. It could be mountain, cloud. I mean, there's a gazillion possible next word predictions. And so the space is so much larger. The ideas are so much more abstract. I just couldn't wrap my intuition around the idea that we would be able to create the incredible large language models that you see today. Okay. So with this one, what I appreciate about this and where I think we're going to see uh, this play out in new and creative ways. So first of all, one, the first thing I want to address on this is the fact this should be extremely encouraging for folks. Let me just say, and you may be going, how would that be encouraging other than just that's cool? Now, what I think is encouraging about this is right now I hear a lot of people who are stressed out and overwhelmed because they feel like this AI change has come overnight and all this stuff has just been 
dropped on us and it's overwhelming. And in many ways, there is truth to that. I agree that there is truth to how quickly it can feel like this has happened, how much change in the pace of change is certainly faster than it ever has been in human history. Yet, it's not moving quite as fast as it's often presented. So if you heard him talk about this in more depth, he talks about this has been really a lot of this advancement has accelerated over the last 10 years. Now, if you look at a lot of the narratives around this right now, you would think that AI and its boom just happened at the end of 2022. And before that, it was a novel concept. And that's just not the case. And so I think that should be an encouragement to folks who may be feeling overwhelmed, maybe feeling like there's just no way they can get caught up with things that, yes, it's moving fast. Yes, it's overwhelming. Yet at the same time, you are going to have time to catch up. And some of these things that we're seeing and some of the ways this change is happening, it's moving a little bit slower than you may be realizing. And that's a good thing because it gives us time to adapt. It gives us time to change to things. I think the other thing that was really interesting about this part and listening to, here's one of the leading world experts in artificial intelligence who has been involved with this from its early, early days, and he is seeing things that he went, I just never even imagined that we would be doing this now or that these kinds of things would be happening. To me, this highlights that the limits of what we can do with artificial intelligence is only limited by our imagination. And so many of the use cases, I'm involved in a lot of panels, I'm involved in a lot of conversations around where should we be using AI and a lot of times the disappointment in this is I see so much just iterative change, not novel ideas, not completely rethinking what could be done. And this is just, I think, a habit of human nature is we don't necessarily like dramatic changes. We tend to focus on how to make small incremental changes to things. And the downside to that is we're missing opportunities. And I continue seeing that in the HR tech in the workplace tech space, but I can only imagine that this is playing out everywhere else where people are finding iterative ways to slightly improve. And I think we can do so much more than just that. I think we can do so much more than improve workflows and maybe automate this and that, or maybe make things a little bit faster. I think we truly have an opportunity to look at things and go, what would we do if we could do anything? If we could do anything, how would that play out? And I, I'm excited to see some of the creativity and innovation that comes out of that because I think those are important questions to be asking because the reality is AI is unlocking possibilities that even people who created it are going, wow, I never imagined that we would be using it in that way. And I think that's a really important call out because if they're not seeing it, then that tells me there's so much opportunity that we're completely missing. And I look forward to where that goes. And I would encourage anybody watching or listening to challenge your environment and say, where could we actually truly just completely reimagine what it is we're thinking of doing here? Okay. So this next clip here is he's talking about, he's asked directly, are you optimistic or pessimistic? And I think it's worth listening to his answer and I really appreciate it. So I'll add a little bit more to it. So here we go. Honestly. I don't think an optimism or a pessimism frame is the right one because both are equally biased in ways that I think distract us. 
as I say in the book, on the face of it, it does look like containment isn't possible. We haven't contained or permanently banned a technology of this type in the past. There are some that we have done, right? So we banned CFCs, for example, because they were producing a hole in the ozone layer. We've banned certain weapons, chemical and biological weapons, for example, or blinding lasers, believe it or not. There are such things as lasers that will instantly blind you. you know, so we have stepped back from the frontier in some cases, but that's largely where there's either cheaper or you know, equally effective alternatives that are quickly adopted. In this case, these technologies are omni-use. So the same core technology can be used to identify you know, cancerous tumors in chest X-rays as it can to identify a target on the battlefield for an aerial strike. So that mixed use or omni-use is going to drive the proliferation because there's huge commercial incentives because it's going to deliver a huge benefit and do a lot of good. And that's the challenge that we have to figure out is how to stop something which on the face of it is so good, but at the same time can be used in really bad ways too. Okay. So with this one, there's a lot in here that I like. And his point about its omni-use adding to the complexity of this thing is spot on. I mean, the fact, like you said, the thing that can diagnose a tumor better and potentially save someone's life can also be the very thing we use to target people with targeted missiles and take life. And so that omni-use makes this vastly more complex. Now, one of the things I really appreciated about this, though, uh, is the fact that he called in to attention some examples because it's easy to start thinking about the negatives and think, there's no way. There's just no way we're never going to get around this. There's how is it ever going to be possible to contain or adapt to the dark future ahead? And he highlights some really good examples of how we've done it. And some of the things that we've done, I was watching something the other day about how we've managed to decommission so much of the nuclear power that you know was made and created for destruction. Have we done it all? No, but there are things that we've walked back from the precipice. And you'll see he talks about it later. I think I've got it called out about the fact like, well, what drives that? Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But I think it's good to remember that there are times we've done these things and we've been faced with seemingly impossible challenges and we've overcome it. And I also really appreciate his focus on the seeming paradox of pessimism and optimism. And that's the wrong question to be asking. Are you pessimistic or optimistic? I'm both in depending on the situation. It is a very complicated situation. And going back to what I said in the intro, that there's a lot of this almost ecclesiastical wisdom in here of, yes, it's going to be horrible and wonderful at the same time. And yes, he goes on to think that we'll overcome it. And I agree that I think we will overcome some of the challenges that we will inevitably be faced with artificial intelligence. He doesn't necessarily get into it, but I think our belief, our beliefs in why we will overcome would be, differ. This may be where we have the same agreement on the outcome, which is ultimately we will overcome, but for different reasons. And mine obviously stem back to the fact that from a biblical worldview, you can read how the Bible has this end. So even if it is going to end, then that's exactly what the plan is type of a thing. And ultimately there's a happy ending on the other side of all that. So ultimately, will it all work out in the end? 
Yeah, I would agree with him. Yeah, I think we will. I think where there's a little bit of difference also, though, is he talks a lot about the possibilities of some of these negative things that could happen. I think they're inevitabilities. I think some of these negative things that we're saying, well, this could happen, I would say, well, they will. They will. It's an inevitability that some of the beauty and horror of artificial intelligence, they will happen. It's not, well, maybe one or the other. I think we're going to see them both, which I'll talk about a little bit later. I think it's an inevitability on both sides. And right now, I think some of the things that he's hinting on, which many people in the space are right now, is we don't know really where this is all going to go. We've got some ideas. We've got some strategies. We've got some plans. There's a lot of people putting a lot of time and effort into this, but we technically don't know what the outcome is, um, at least in the nuance. Again, the worldview difference. I personally would say I know what the outcome, the ultimate outcome is, but how it plays out and what's going to happen in between, I don't know for sure. Um, this goes back though to the fact that we will experience the negative. And that is a part that we need to lean into. And it's exciting and terrifying at the same time that something so with so much potential can also do so much destruction. And I think what's important, and he hits on this a lot, is we need to not shy away from that. It doesn't mean we run in paranoia and we become pessimists and start building bunkers in our backyard thinking that the end is near. But we have to lean into the reality that, well, some of that stuff is a reality. And what I would say is it's an inevitability. We are going to see some horrific things. And that really sucks. It really sucks that some of that stuff is going to happen. And we're going to have to go through that. And yet, what may come from that is going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. Now, this next part here that he's going to get into, let me just make note of the time here, uh, is an interesting one where he talks about some of the dark side of it and a very practical example that I will unpack a little bit more with some stuff that I've spent some time digging into myself. So let me turn this one on. And what's the implications of that? Well, potential implications. I think that the darkest scenario there is that people will experiment with pathogens engineered you know, synthetic pathogens that might end up accidentally or intentionally being more transmissible, i.e. They, they, they can spread faster um, or more lethal, i.e. You know, they cause more harm or potentially kill. Like a pandemic. Like a pandemic. Um, and that's where we need containment, right? We have to limit access to the tools and the know-how to carry out that kind of experimentation. So one framework of thinking about this with respect to making containment possible is that we really are experimenting with dangerous materials. And anthrax is not something that can be bought over the internet that can be freely experimented with. And likewise, the very best of these tools in a few years' time are going to be capable of creating you know, new synthetic um, pandemic pathogens. And so we have to restrict access to those things. That means restricting access to the compute. It means restricting access to the software that runs the models to the cloud environments that provide APIs, provide you access to experiment with those things. Um, and of course, on the biology side, it means restricting access to some of the substances. And people aren't going to like this. People are not going to like that claim because it means that those who want to do good, 
with those tools, those who want to create a startup, the small guy, the little developer that struggles to comply with all the regulations, they're going to be pissed off, understandably, right? But that is the age we're in. Deal with it. Like, we have to confront that reality. That means that we have to approach this with the precautionary principle, right? Never before in the invention of a technology or in the creation of a regulation have we proactively said, we need to go slowly. We need to make sure that this first does no harm, the precautionary principle. And that is just an unprecedented moment. No other technology has done that, right? Because I think we collectively in the industry, those of us who are closest to the work, can see a place in five years or 10 years where it could get out of control. And we have to get on top of it now. And it's better to forego, like that is give up some of those potential upsides or benefits until we can be more sure that it can be contained, that it can be controlled, that it always serves. Okay, I'm gonna stop it there. But what I wanna comment on this is dig into a little bit about, like I said, he highlights a very practical example of the dark side of this. And again, this is something that I've taken some time to dig into myself, just out of curiosity in terms of you know how this can work. And so unrelated to AI, having been in the healthcare space, and seeing what can be done with healthcare and all this stuff. I've spent a little time just seeing like, hey, out of curiosity, if somebody wanted to set up a lab in their home, and by the way, this is not something like I'm actually looking into. It's more out of curiosity to see what this is. I was watching a video the other day that was talking about this. To set up a lab in your house, it's roughly the cost of a car to do that. Now, it used to cost significantly more. You used to have labs and all. I mean, this was a major investment. And so now is it becoming feasible that someone realistically could set up a lab in their house and, you know, ha have access to all the tools, the laboratory materials, all this stuff. And a lot of this, even in the healthcare, right, unrelated to AI is really poorly governed in terms of being able to manipulate the genetics of viruses and bacteria and all this other stuff and potentially do some pretty nefarious things with that. Yeah, you can. And that's a little bit terrifying, just AI separate. Now you combine that with AI and now the risk is becoming even more real because not only is it just, well, you could do that, but AI is now turning a common person into a super human who could, again, do some pretty crazy things. And AI is driving the costs of things down because as AI solves some of these bigger problems, things become less expensive what costs what a car would cost now could cost significantly less in the coming years. And so I appreciate the fact that he focuses on how we are approaching this innovation differently than we have in the past because there are so many voices going, this has the potential to destroy us. And we have to accept that as a possibility, not to drive fear, but to say, so what are we going to do to get in front of it? And slowing down is actually a good thing. And that is a lot of where the effort is going. Now, some of the things, you know, I just framed up this potentially frightening, terrifying thing that your neighbor in their garage could be doing something potentially catastrophic. But again, going back to something I said earlier, we tend to focus on the negative. Flip that on its head. That means your neighbor could also be creating the next cure for cancer or the next cure for some disease that 
big pharmaceutical companies just don't have the funding or the time to do. And as we democratize this, somebody who's deeply passionate about this orphan disease that very few people suffer from, but because their spouse was diagnosed with it and passed away, they are determined to solve for it. The fact that that realistically could be done in their garage, that's actually wonderful as well. And this goes back to this paradoxical side of, while that horrible, terrifying end game scenario could also be flipped and be a very bright future of how we solve some of the world's biggest problems. So I think this is a really, really, really great example where the moral and philosophical discussions around containment need to go because you're going to have people looking at the same situation with a number of different views. To the point he said, there's going to be, need to be containment put on certain things. And there are going to be some people who are going to get really pissed off about that because it's going to be seen as policing and over you know, government having too much of a hand in things and all it's going to be viewed that you're going to have other people who think, well, we should just contain everything. And there's no, everything should only be in the hands of certain people. And they're going to take away opportunity from people who can do it. And we're going to need to lean into some of these and find what the right guardrails are for this. Now, what's a little unnerving for me is that in the polarized state of our nation and just the world as a whole, this is going to get politicized. I fully predict that at some point the elephant and the donkey are going to get in on this thing and it's going to become part of the conversation and you're going to vote. If you believe in this, you vote this. If you believe in that, you vote this. And it's going to become tense and hostile. And I hope we can start diffusing some of that polarization before that happens. Because as we've seen throughout history, when things all of a sudden turn into others and we demonize the other side, we really end up solving for no one. And it's not a good end to things. And again, I anticipate the conspiracies that are going to come along with this. It's going to get ugly. I fully anticipate. And this again, paradoxically, it's going to get ugly and it's going to be wonderful at the same time. Um, and I think we need to recognize that and we need to be having more of these conversations. I think the other thing that this brings up as he talks about containment and what we do and all of this is we're going to have to align on who decides what is the governing factor for the big truth, the big T, capital T truth, where we say, hey, this is the line. Going beyond this is just unacceptable. And what are we using to do this? Now, what I will tell you is, this is going to be, if you're coming at this from a biblical worldview, from a Christian worldview, there's not like some chapter or verse. And I think that's an opportunity area where Christians a lot of times lean in and just think, oh, well, we'll just solve this with the Bible. And I think there is truth to the wisdom that can come from that, that can contribute to this. But you can't go to like 1 John 4, 6 and say, how are we going to navigate the future of AI with this and just quote a verse and go, oh, yeah, th there we go. So even that kind of oversimplistic thinking just doesn't even add value. Even to people who I would say would share my worldview, I think there's going to be a lot of that attitude that's just oversimplistic. And I think we actually need to encourage diverse thinkers because even as I've talked about these and if you've listened to other ones, there are lots of times where 
I agree with people with a wildly different worldview than me. My reason for agreeing may be different. And that's why we need to have diverse thinkers, people who are bringing different perspectives and angles on this, because there is a lot of philosophical, moral discussion that is going to have. And you're going to see some of these examples as I continue going through this. Okay, so I'm going to jump into this next one where he talks about the importance of self-control. I'm going to play this here and then we'll I'll talk a little bit more about it. That's what the containment problem is, is that it's it's actually saying no sometimes. It's saying no. And that's a different sort of muscle that we've never really exercised as a civilization. And, and that's obviously why containment appears not to be possible because we've never done it before. We've never done it before. And every inch of our, you know, commerce and politics and our war and our, all of our instincts are just like clash compete clash compete profit profit grow beat exactly you know. dominate you know fear them be paranoid like now all this nonsense about like china being this new evil like it, it, how does that slip into our culture how are we suddenly all shifted from thinking it's the, the the muslim terrorists about to blow us all up to now it's the chinese who are about to you know blow up kansas it's just like what are we talking about they, like we really have to pare back the paranoia and the fear and the othering um, because those are the incentive dynamics that are going to drive us to, you know, cause self-harm to humanity. Mm. Thinking. Okay. So this I had mentioned before was going to be a segment. I really, again, while our logic for why we agree on this may be very different, I couldn't agree more with him on this. And his point in here is just the fact that saying no is actually a really good thing. So it was really encouraging for me to hear from him coming from a secular worldview that, hey, secular or not, doesn't matter whether you have a theological leaning, you're completely secular, you're over here. We need to have universal agreement that boundaries and guardrails are a good thing. They're a healthy thing and that saying no is a positive, can be a positive. Yes, do we need to debate and argue and disagree on where those lines fall? Absolutely. But what we need to be universally aligned to is the fact that, hey, boundaries are healthy. And in this situation specifically, if we don't have boundaries, it's going to destroy us. And I think this is a real example where, you know, we've lived in an age where for many folks, it's been like, all boundaries are bad. I should be able to do whatever I want. And anybody just, you be you and I'll be me and it'll all be fine in the end. And I think this is a real example in human history where we go, uh, nope, nope. If we just say, everybody go do whatever the heck you want, uncontained, it will annihilate us. And so I think that's really fantastic that that's the conclusion. And I'm that's a conclusion that I'm seeing from people from all sorts of worldviews. Now, again, right, where that comes from on my end is, you know, well, a death to ourselves, to, to love God and love others. So is what's driving my view on this potentially different? Yes. But I think this is something that we all should and can get behind that. Well, you don't have to have the same, adhere to the same worldview as I do to say, you know what, we do need to have governance around this. But again, we have to ask, well, what governance are we going to choose? And I think this is where there's going to be some healthy debate in this. And, you know, here's the thing that may not always be popular with people in the, you know, Christian segment is we need diverse 
perspectives on this. While I adhere to the biblical worldview being right, I don't believe that Christians historically have had a great history of always interpreting what the biblical worldview is as right, right? We don't always interpret it well. And I think this is concerning because you'll have people, and this isn't just unique to Christians, but this is something that a lot of times people do is they go, well, my interpretation's right and anything other than that is wrong. And then we go browbeating people into our positions. And I think what he's getting at here is, hey, we cannot be doing this othering. His example of, hey, it used to be these were the bad guys, the others, now it's these folks. We've got to stop doing that. And we really have to lean in. We have to stop the fear mongering, the othering, which really is ultimately the dehumanization of people. And if you look over the course of human history, whenever we've dehumanized people, it never goes well. It does not end well. And I don't need to argue that from a biblical position. You can just look at natural law. You just see this in common examples, left and right, that when we dehumanize anyone, it doesn't end well. And it's just going to feed into it as he hit on there. So more than ever, we need to lean into others, not only when they're different, but especially if they're different. And this is a skill that I think everyone needs to get more comfortable with is how do you engage something that we've lost? How do you engage with someone who believes wildly different than you and still treat them with dignity and respect and have a charitable discussion? And again, find those common points of agreement. Like I said, it doesn't matter what your worldview is. We should all be able to agree. You know what? Some degree of governance around artificial intelligence and where we're going is good. Now we can disagree on what that is and we'll have to compromise, which he talks about in this throughout is, hey, we're going to have to compromise. We're going to push and shove. And going back to what I've said before, the inevitability, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to think we drew the right line and it's not going to go right. Or we're going to miss opportunity and someone's going to draw a different line and we're going to learn along the way. And that can be terrifying, but that also can be extremely encouraging of what we can learn from that. But I think no matter what, all of us should be able to agree that, you know what, we do need to have self-control and self-control is a healthy thing and not just with AI. I hope a lesson that we can learn from this is that self-control and saying no to things and not just giving into whatever it is we feel in the moment, that's actually a positive attribute, even though in the moment it may not feel like that. I hope that's something that we can take from this AI conversation and discussion, not this one in particular, but just in general, and that we can learn and apply that. Just like we've learned and applied a lot of lessons coming out of COVID that have made us better on the other side. Okay, so this next one I wanna talk about, I'm gonna share this clip where he talks about AI's superiority, which you'll see that Stephen, throughout this conversation, he's, he wrestles with this of feeling that, you know, well, that's really what makes me feel like, oh, this is going to go bad is this AI superiority. But it's interesting hearing um, Mustafa's response to this. So check it out. Um, Move 37 does this crazy thing and you see everybody like lean in and go, why is it done that? Yeah. And it turns out to be brilliant that humans couldn't the, the commentator actually thought it was a mistake. Yeah. He was a pro and he was like, this, this is definitely a mistake. You know, the, the Alpha goes lost the game. But it was so far ahead of us that right. it knew something we didn't. Right. Right. That's when I, that's when I lost hope in this whole idea of like, oh, train it to do what we want. <laughs> like a dog, like sit, pour, roll over. Right. Well, the real challenge is that we actually want it to do those things. Like mm. when it discovers a new strategy or it invents a new idea 
or it helps us find like you know a Cancer cure for some disease yeah. right that's why we're building it right because we're reaching the limits of what we as you know humans can invent and solve right especially with what we're facing of you know in terms of population growth over the next 30 years and how climate change is going to affect that and so on like we really want these tools to turbocharge us right and yet like it's that creativity and that invention which obviously makes us also feel well maybe it it is really going to do things that we don't like for sure right okay so if before this part of the conversation they're talking about um the i can't remember the game something go that AI learned and it became superior. And it's, it's one of the reference examples that they often talk about where AI just turned into this super thing. But what they talked about it was there was a time where AI made something that looked like a mistake and everyone went well, like, what are you doing? That was a huge, huge mistake. And then it ended up being brilliant. And so you can see from here that Steven's concern is like, well, that's, that's what has me kind of going, yeah, there's no way this is going to end well. But I love how, Mustafa calls this out as actually that very thing that terrifies you is actually one of the beauty, beautiful and wonderful things about it. And this is something that I think we're going to have to address as we look at this is that the scarcity mindset is what will crush us. And this isn't, again, I need to argue this from a biblical perspective or anything. You can just see this from natural law. We often fear what we don't know because we're afraid there won't be enough or we feel inferior. But actually some of the greatest things come from when we don't have enough or when we're pressed to our limits and we have to do this. And so sometimes the things we fear and we shy away from are actually the things that will drive us to a better place. Now, it's really important to recognize the risk. And I that's one of the things I most appreciate Mustafa's position is, he doesn't shy away from this and he does it in such a way you can see the difference contrasting Stephen from Mustafa. You know, Stephen goes into it and he, he looks at the risk and at times almost kind of recoils back and goes, I, you know, and that's what makes me unnerved. And Mustafa does the opposite. He leans in and goes, yeah, but that's actually what's wonderful about it. And yes, we need to hold in great respect these significant risks that are associated with this. Absolutely. He doesn't deny that and go, all oh, those risks aren't real, but he says, but that risk is actually what's crucial about this. Now for me, what I, and again, this is where I, I'd be curious to hear what drives Mustafa in having that kind of bold confidence in things like that. Where does that come from for him? For me, my identity and what I need is ultimately is not rooted or dependent on other people. So I, it's, it's not a threat that AI might be smarter than I am or that it could do all these other things, you know, or whether I've been, I'm going to get what I deserve, which really ties into this scarcity mindset. Now I will be crystal clear that that doesn't make me completely immune and that there's not days where I wrestle with this myself. But for me, my, biblical worldview and ultimately being a Christian is where my identity is rooted. And so that builds a firm foundation that's in something more secure than whether AI can go do this or whether, you know, this changes in the world or this person gets elected into office. It doesn't necessarily shake the foundation. So what this makes me think though, is for folks who aren't rooted, and this is why I'd be very curious what Mustafa's 
anchoring himself in because he clearly has a confidence in where this is going. And he recognizes the horrible things and the atrocities that could happen. And at the same time says, yeah, but there's also a wonder and beauty in that. But not everybody has that regardless of where it's coming from. And so I think to people watching and listening, you need to recognize that is a vulnerability. So as you make decisions around what you do about AI, but many other things, you need to be aware that if your identity and your value and these other things are rooted in things that, and we're seeing this, I saw this all the time around the pandemic. People were so identified with what they did with their job. And when the pandemic hit, they just, they fell apart. I knew someone who was a professional sports player that got injured. And when they got injured and they weren't that sports player, their whole world fell apart because they had rooted themselves in that. And so I think for anybody watching and listening, that's something you need to, again, like Mustafa says, lean into the discomfort of that, of where are you anchoring yourself? Where are you building your foundation? Where are you placing your trust? So that when AI comes and offers all this other stuff, it you are less vulnerable. You are less vulnerable to what it can do. Okay, so this next one's an interesting transition because they start talking about AI as conscious beings. And he referenced it earlier, um, specific to robots, which I'll talk about um, as part of this. But listen to this part where he talks about transhumanism and check it out and then I'll comment in on it here. This goes back to the point about being, is it, did you say transhumanist? Right. What does that mean? Transhumanism, I mean, it's a group of people who basically believe that you that that humans and our soul and our being will one day transcend or move beyond our biological substrate so our physical body our brain our biology is just an enabler for your intelligence and who you are as a person and there's a group of kind of crackpots basically i think (laughs) who think that we're going to be able to upload ourselves to a silicon substrate right a computer that can hold the essence of what it means to be Stephen. So you in 200, in 20, uh, in, in 2200, well, could well still be you by their reasoning, but you'll live on a server somewhere. Why are they? Okay. So this one's <laughs> out there, but not. And let me unpack what I mean by that. Cause this one, I actually ended up spending, I don't know how much time just thinking and reflecting on this whole thing. So this idea of your consciousness, your human consciousness being uploaded to the cloud, which again, he talks earlier in it about the fact that robots will be here in 20. So this idea that you could take what's in your head, put yourself in a robot. And in some ways, a transhuman version of you could be created. Now, I agree that the idea that the true essence of who you are could be transferred into some AI bot that could then right, be a transcendent version of you. So I, I personally agree that there's some crackpot to that with some twists, okay? So what I do agree with, though, on the crackpots he refers to as where I would align with them is that I do believe our body is an enabler of something bigger, right? We're more than just a walking meat sack, 
with electrons bouncing around in our head that hypothetically could be downloaded and placed into a thing. I think there's more to it, which those crackpots he's referring to, I think that's what they're getting at is there's something unique and interesting about that that could be created in, you know, the promise of eternal life could be there. I personally don't see us graduating from our bodies as part of the story. And I think that's where we would diverge. And that's even just from a biblical standpoint. You know, if you're familiar with the biblical story, it doesn't end with us ending our time here, kind of graduating from our bodies and moving up and floating around playing harps up in heaven in this, you know, perpetual eternal state of substantive, non-substantive existence type of a thing. So I think that's where I would diverge from the so-called crackpots. Um, I actually think our bodies are part of the good creation. And so that's, again, theologically and just, I can't even get on board with the idea of, well, you could take someone's human consciousness, download it and put it in something. It just so does not fit with where I stand. So again, my understanding of Mustafa is we have very different worldviews, yet we would very much agree on the fact that, yeah, I don't think that's even possible. But now, okay, so let's take the philosophical and then I'm going to talk about where I think we have to watch for this because I think there's some real risk to it um, and you'll see why. But even just purely from a natural law standpoint, let's forget the philosophical, moral, you know, all this other stuff, theological implications of it. Even just purely from a natural law, one thing that I don't think people understand is high quality AI requires large amounts of data to do a good job of doing what it is. So the idea of being able to capture enough data about you to create a conscious, existent version of you in the cloud, in a robot, in something like that, is so impractical. Because again, I don't think many people realize the sheer volume of data it goes to train a model to accurately and actively get this right. So you would... If you were going to create an AI version of Christopher Lynn, you would literally need something tracking my every behavior, every decision I make and an ongoing basis because of the fact that I'm changing my views and I'm learning and adapting based on my environments. I'm discovering new things along the way. So it, it would have to be tracking all of that, be able to predict the trajectory of that. And it also have to understand all the unseen logic and thought behind the decisions and the actions that I make. It's just, to me, this is just a data problem. There is so much data that we have in our existence to create something that resembles a version of this that, oh, hey, this is the AI version of me. And people go, wow, that's like indistinguishable. I, I just can't even, it's just out there. It's just so far out there. That said, and this is where the interesting part that I think we have to be careful of, but I see the beauty and wonder in this. If I were to make a prediction, there absolutely will be promises of this. Going back to the savior complex, AI will save you. AI will give you eternal life. We'll download your consciousness and you'll live on forever. And that kind of stuff is real. Coming, Growing up in a funeral home from a commercialization standpoint, I can see someone saying, hey, who says your dead loved one has to pass on? What if we could offer you 
the ability to resurrect your dead loved one. And you know what? We can even give you a robot of them that walks around. You can actually have, we'll make them look exactly like, that may sound crazy. I don't think it is. And I think someone will commercialize that with that promise in the future. And it might be the not so distant future. And I'm telling you, there's a huge market for it. Now, are there some things where I look at that and you go, holy, that's terrifying, right? The idea that someone could be promised, hey, you could bring your dead loved one back to life. We'll just upload enough YouTube videos and enough information from their basement into it. And we'll create a version of them that you can have your dad live with you, but it's a robot one. So when he annoys you, you put him in the basement type of a thing. It sounds ridiculous, but within that, I see some beauty and wonder. And so as an example of this, I can see a world where that could be used for good. And if you have a letter from your loved one that passed away, that you could then turn that letter into an audio file or a video file or potentially something where you've now taken something. And I give this example because I saw this, I watch a lot of Disney Plus, as you can imagine, with seven kids. And I saw a similar example of this. And Disney, I don't think even realized they did it. But this Imagineer's mom was is part of the ride of the Haunted Mansion. And it's her face, and she's in the crystal ball. And the daughter loves going to that ride and going through it because she can see and listen and experience her mother even though she died many, many years ago. And to me, that is a beautiful, wonderful thing because you have created something from that person that then becomes a reminder, a, a memory that goes beyond just like, yeah, I've got this like letter from dad. No, you actually could have a, you, and you could technically do this today. I could get a voice clip from my dad. I could have him write a letter to me and then I could get an AI version of, him and even make a video of an AI avatar of him with his voice reading something so that if he passed away, and again, I think there's some real wonder in that. At the same time, this idea that we could create consciousness, we could create something. It's not, it crosses, I'll probably do a separate video just on this topic because it crosses so many lines and the reality is, but the reality is that's going to be a promise that is going to come. And it's going to be very appealing to some people who are afraid of dying, who are afraid of what the future holds, who are afraid of, you know, losing something, that scarcity mindset coming back in. All of a sudden, the promise of AI, hey, AI can solve that for you. You don't need to worry about the fact you're getting old. You don't need to worry about the fact you have a degenerative disease. We'll just create an AI version based on your past and create a brighter future for it's real and it is coming. And I think we need to be aware of it and lean into that concern so that we can start to place guardrails and things around that. Because again, could that kind of thing be used to dehumanize someone? Like I said, I'll create a separate video on this or this one will go way too long. This is real. And if you listen to an earlier part of the conversation with Mustafa, his early prediction is within the next two years, we're going to have robots. We absolutely are going to have robots. And I'll tell you, I'll be the first one to have one that can help me around the house, take care of the kids or take care of the projects. I'm, I'm not handy. Help me with that kind of stuff. But going back to it, if you could create a semi version of someone and actually with the promise that it is them, 
there are some things that you just should not artificially substitute. And I think that's territory where you're going to be crossing lines that you don't need to cross or shouldn't cross or the consequences will be serious. So anyway, like I said, I'll probably do a separate video just on that because there's a whole lot more I have to say on that. But I appreciated them starting to unpack some of this. Now, I'm going to talk about this part here where he talks about the success we've had in containment, which again, I mentioned earlier, but he does it well here. Let me pull this one up real quick. That's actually a good example because we have actually contained Rottweilers before. We've contained gorillas and, you know, tigers and crocodiles and pandemic pathogens and nuclear weapons. And so, you know, it's easy to be, you know, a hater on what we've achieved. But this is the most peaceful moment in the history of our species. This is a moment when our biggest problem is that people eat too much. Think about that. We've spent our entire evolutionary period running around looking for food and trying to stop, you know, our enemies throwing rocks at us. And we've had this incredible period of 500 years where, you know, each year things have broadly, well, maybe each, each century, let's say, there's been a few ups and downs, but things have broadly got better. And we're on a trajectory for, you know, lifespans to increase and quality of life to increase and health and well-being to improve. And I think that's because in many ways we have succeeded in containing forces that appear to be more powerful than ourselves. It just requires unbelievable creativity and adaptation. It requires compromise and it requires a, a new tone, right? A much more humble tone to governance and politics and, and how we run our world. Not this kind of like hyper-aggressive adversarial paranoia tone that we talked about previously, but one that is like much more wise than that, much more accepting that we are unleashing this force that does have that potential to be the Rottweiler that you described, but that we must contain that as our number one priority. That has to be the thing that we focus on because otherwise it contains us. <laughs> okay. So what I really enjoyed about that part is couple things. One, I appreciated his view, his 100,000 view on the overall improvement of human existence and him calling out some of the, you know, first world problems that we often wrestle with now that in the course of human history, if you study human history, they would just look at where we are today and go, you think you're in a tough spot right now? And that's not to deny that there aren't horrible tragedies and atrocities and that bad things don't happen. It's not and I appreciated the way he framed it. He's not denying that reality, yet at the same time looking and going, but look overall, overall, look at the trajectory of things. And I think it's a good reminder because it's easy to get overly focused that everything's wrong and nothing's right. And we haven't made any progress and everything's just a, a absolute mess. And honestly, I think in some ways I see this among, you know, the circles of, other folks in the Christian community that a lot of times there's this idea that it's just a horrible, horrible place and it's only going to get worse and everything's terrible. And it's not. And when you really look at the long view, we have a positive trajectory and I appreciate that. I also really appreciated his emphasis on what for me, I would consider biblical values, even coming from a secular perspective. He talks about this, you know, higher level of wisdom where we aren't beating each other up for, you know, what things are and we're treating people with kindness and we're having patience and self-control and all these other things. And we focuses that it comes from humility and compromise and restraint. Uh, and again, like throughout all these things, 
while our reasons for why he sees those as important may be very different, I would very much agree with him that, yeah, I 100% agree that that is going to be one of the keys to success for containment. Now, he doesn't say it here, but some of the things that he talks about, and I do see this kind of worldview creeping into other places, is that I don't know for sure, but he, I don't, I get the sense that he may align to this idea that if we can just solve some of these problems, and maybe it's not AI, but this goes back to the AI savior thing, but there's this idea that, you know, if we can just solve all these problems, if we can just get the right thing, if we can just do this, then eventually we can work our way out of it. And through our own creativity and grit, we can fix all the problems in the world. And what I would say is to anybody listening to this, you know, my take on that is, is if you actually believe that, you are headed down a path of disappointment and destruction. The idea that you or me or anyone here on earth or any technology or anything like that will eventually get us to a state of nirvana. I just don't agree. I just don't agree. And they don't hit on it, but Stephen always brings up the other side. Well, what about this? And this, and he, Mustaf acknowledged, yeah, that's an inevitability, but maybe we can avoid it. Maybe we can get around. And I think the problem that they're talking about is the problem of sin. And while, right, as a Christian, I believe there's a solution to that. I don't know that's where they're going with it. But again, I would just look, I don't need to argue that from a biblical perspective. Look at human history. Look at examples of things where promises of, hey, this will be the thing. This will be the hope. This will be the thing that will get us out of this mess. It never delivers on that promise. It never delivers on that promise. And that's something that I think we need to be careful of. And while I appreciate his positive lens on, hey, you know what? We've contained things. We've made the world a better place. Things have improved over time. We also need to be mindful that, yeah. And I don't know that we've ever seen anything actually get us there. And that's just, again, a different viewpoint on things. Okay, so this next one is uh, talking about trust. So let me play this and we'll go from there. So let's see what they have to say about the erosion of trust. It really brings into focus that we, our lives are built on, built on trust, trusting the things we see, hear, and watch. And, in, in, and now we're at, it feels like a, a, a moment where we're no longer going to be able to trust what we see mm. on the internet, on the phone. Mm. What, what, what advice do, you, do we, you have for people who are worried about this? Mm, mm. So skepticism, I think, is healthy and necessary. And I think that we're going to need it um, even more than, than we ever did, right? And so if you think about how we've adapted to the first wave of this, which was spammy email scams, um, everybody got them. And over time, people learned to identify them and be skeptical of them and reject them. Likewise, you know, I'm sure many of us get like text messages. I certainly get loads of text messages trying to fish me and ask me to meet up or do this, that, and the other. And we've adapted, right? Now, I think we should all know and expect that criminals will use these tools to manipulate us, just as you've described. I mean, you know, the voice is going to be human-like. The deep fake is going to be super convincing. And there are actually ways around those things. So, for example, the reason why the banks invented... OTP, um, one-time passwords, where they send you a text message with a special code um, is precisely for this reason, so that you have a two FA, a two-factor authentication. Increasingly, we will have a three or four-factor authentication, 
where you have to triangulate between multiple separate independent sources. And it won't just be like call your bank manager and release the funds, right? So this is where we need the creativity and energy and attention of everybody because defense, the kind of defensive measures have to evolve as quickly as the potential offensive measures, the attacks that are coming. Okay. So this trust area, this arena of concern around trust is one that I also share as a significant area of concern. I think the psychological, the emotional implications of people just questioning and being able to trust what they see and hear is real. And I don't know that we've even fully even began to see the implications of what that's going to do to a society, to people as a whole. And I agree with his assessment of the fact that we will adapt. We do see some of this stuff. So we'll talk about that. And I agree. So here's something else I agree with. I agree that his point of skepticism is good and that paranoia is not. So overall, I agree that Yes, we should be skeptical. We should grow in our rising sense of skepticism about things so that we don't just fall victim to some of this. At the same time, so we, I think we need to be shrewd as serpents. Uh, what I'm cautious of and where I get nervous is that we don't forget, and this is just a reference to Matthew 10, 16, you'll be wise as serpents, shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves. One of the things that I think we see and the risk I think we can potentially run into as we become more skeptical and concerned and things like that is we can lose that innocence, that loving compassion that we have towards others. And we've seen this over the past few years when people start getting afraid, skeptic or skepticism can lead to paranoia. And I think that's the trajectory we have to be really mindful and really careful of because as you start to move from skeptical to paranoia, skepticism is good. Paranoia is not good. And as you move down that trajectory, you start to treat people differently. Going back to some of the themes that have been threaded throughout here of treating people as others and they're the enemy. And if you don't agree with me, then you're on the other side and I need to destroy you and all of this. And I will be the first to say Christians do not always do a great job with this. And the past few years have been a rock star example of where proclaiming Christians, I would say, have not done a good job of being skeptical, but also innocent. And I think this is something that we need to be really careful of as we move into this age of distrust. I also agree we're going to need to be creative as we play defense. And defense, playing a strong defense, is the best offense in this. And there's a lot more opportunity for people to raise their digital acumen. And those that fall behind, if you're watching or listening to this and you're like, I just don't, I want to stay away from it, you will likely suffer. And I think the people who choose not to lean into where we're going are going to be the ones who are more vulnerable. Does it necessarily mean a guarantee you're going to fall victim to this? No. Will you be more vulnerable? Now, where I would go a step further and advocate from my worldview is I actually would say a relationship with the God of the Bible is one of the, is the best step for preparing for an age of eroding trust and all of this, because as you look at a world that is just becoming less trustworthy and you're continually seeing on a greater scale that people, the world life, 
everything you know will let you down, including yourself. This idea that, well, maybe if I just truly lean into myself and you're going to let yourself down, you need to have something that can stand firm. You need to have the rock to be able to stand up. And personally, this isn't trying to convert anybody, but my experience has been there's only one thing that can withstand that. And that is where I think, you know, I would advocate people to at least explore. If you don't have that rock, you're going to get smashed by the tides. And this current cultural movement to just believe in yourself, it's toxic. It's dangerous. And it is going to lead people to be extremely vulnerable. Because if we just tell people, oh, lean into your own wisdom and understanding, you'll solve this out for yourself. It's not going to end well. And so anyway, I think you know, for anybody watching and listening, if you don't have your foundation secure, I would focus on that. Um, and obviously I have a point of view on what that foundation is, but, um, it's at least worth looking into regardless of whether you come to the same conclusion I did or not. The other thing that they hit on that I think, or they didn't hit on that I think is going to be really important is over the past few years, I think it's been very revealing how little we understand about human connection and human relationships. I think COVID showed us we don't understand interpersonal relationships with all that well. And that has nothing to do with AI. I think it has shown us how much we need true, genuine, meaningful relationships with other people. And that can't be substituted with some artificial version of things. And I think that is one of the keys. Again, you got to be standing on a firm foundation, but from there, another activity we need to lean into is investing in building meaningful relationships and personal relationships and being vulnerable with others so that we can withstand it. So that when the world around us is shakier, we're tempted to fall into paranoia about, you know, was this real? Is anything real? What can be real? That we have that security of, no, there is things that are real and they're in my life. And I know who these people are and I can trust them. And yes, they're going to let me down, right? Going back to the ecclesiastical wisdom on that. Yeah, they're going to let you down, but it's real. And the letting me down is something that's real. And I can know what's on the other side of that. So that's, that's my take on this. But again, the erosion of trust, I think we're only seeing, we haven't even hit the tip of the iceberg on what that's going to do to society and humanity as a whole. And it's going to be interesting. I firmly believe we'll adapt, but it's interesting to see, going to be interesting to see how we adapt. And I am very driven to try and ensure we don't go into the paranoia stage. I think it would be bad for everyone. Okay, on a positive note, I wanna bring up this piece here. I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna say anything about it. It has to do with the connection between AI and humans. So we pull this, here we go. Although one of the interesting things that we found um, over the last few decades is that it so far tended to be the AI plus the human that has that is still dominating. That's the case in chess, uh, in Go, in other games. Um, that in Go, so yeah. So there was a paper that came out a few months ago, two months ago, that showed that a human was actually able to beat the cutting edge Go program, um, even one that was better than AlphaGo with a new strategy that they had discovered. Um, you know, so obviously it's not just a sort of game over environment where the AI just arrives and it gets better. Like humans also adapt. They get super smart. They, like I say, get more cynical, ask, get more skeptical, ask, you know, good questions, invent their own things, use their own AIs to adapt. And that's the evolutionary 
nature of what it means to have a technology, right? I mean, everything is a technology, like your pair of glasses made you smarter in a way. Okay. So with this one, this will be a quick one because there's not a whole lot more I would add to this other than I think it's a bright spot in the AI conversation that, you know what, AI plus humans is awesome. It just really is. And I personally, it's great to hear that, you know, the use case of AlphaGo and how, hey, a human paired with AI like crushed it. I know the same thing happened with the AI chess bot, the human with AI beat the best AI bot in the world. Just boom, 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 over and over. And I think that's a bright spot because I personally have experienced this in literally every AI situation I've ever been involved with. When you pair AI with people, always superior than AI to itself. And his point of, we also adapt alongside it. It pushes us to be better. We start to see things we didn't see before. We didn't have capacity or we didn't have time to do. And so now all of a sudden we're seeing things. We can focus our attention on this. We're seeing trends and patterns that it picks up on that we go, ah, you know, I, so we will adapt along with it. And I think it has the potential to make us much better. In fact, I made a YouTube video about how you can use AI to improve your human skills. You can actually become a more successful, the interpersonal, the human skills that really are going to separate you from other people who are competing for your jobs, AI can be a great way to do it. And so I think this is just a bright spot in terms of what we can do with AI. All right, with this one, he talks about regulation and the role that regulation plays in this. Look, it isn't gonna happen without regulation. So regulation is essential, it's critical. Um, again, going back to the precautionary principle, but at the same time, regulation isn't enough. You know, I often hear people say, well, we'll just regulate it. We'll just stop. We'll just stop. We'll just stop. We'll slow down. Um, <clears throat> and the problem with that is that it kind of ignores the fact that the people who are putting together the regulation don't really understand enough about the detail today. You know, in their defense, they're rapidly trying to wrap their head around it, especially in the last six months. And that's a great relief to me because I feel the burden is now increasingly shared. And, you know, just from a personal perspective, I'm like, I feel like I've been saying this for about a decade and just in the last six months, now everyone's coming at me and saying like, you know, what's going on? I'm like, great. This is the conversation we need to be having because everybody can start to see the glimmers of the future. Like what will happen if a chat GPT like product or a pie like product really does improve over the next 10 years. Okay. So with this one, again, ties to the theme, the red thread throughout this about, Hey, there are no simple answers. And you know what? There is, good and bad in all of this. And I appreciate the fact he talks about the fact we all share the burden and that regulation is a requirement. Going back to, we need to regulate this. We need to all agree there needs to be some lines drawn in the sand. Yet, we can't count on that to be the savior of this. We all are going to share the burden of this. And like in anything, when we all share the burden, when we all contribute to the solution, we all win. And I think that's a really important thing. Even you may say, what role could I possibly have in this? But even as a consumer of AI products, you help contribute to the solution because you either buy products that are contributing to the solution or you buy products that are actually exacerbating the problem. And the question I have for everybody watching and listening is, have you defined what your role is? If not, you should spend some time on that. Be thinking about what role can I play? How can I contribute to 
creating greater awareness. How can I contribute by how I spend my money, how I spend my time? I think the other thing he talks about, and I didn't get, they talk about it a little bit later is we need to think more with a long-term mindset. And again, I think this is a biblical value that, you know, is coming from a secular standpoint that I very much agree with. We need to think past the end of our nose and again, have this self-restraint, this self-control, because so often we're chasing what we want today, not thinking about what the implications of it are tomorrow or next year. And I see this in a lot of things, not just in AI. It's a temptation for us. We want to get what we want right now and we'll figure out the rest later. We're so over-focused on the short term. So we need more cross-human collaboration. We need to move away from our national, political, tribal ideologies. We need to spend more people with different perspectives. We need more of that diversity and collaboration. So I would say, you know, for those who are watching and listening, lean into that. If you're not already, that is something. Again, going back to contributions, every one of us can take a role in trying to be less othering of other people, trying to lean into people that maybe were less comfortable. And does that mean you have to be best friends with everybody that you see things wildly different? No. But does it mean you should be leaning into those conversations, treating them with dignity and respect, considering, hey, is there some merit to what's being said by these people that I may not agree with? And that's part of the reason I love engaging with people with lots of different worldviews, because there are times where I go, you know what, at the core of it, we actually are agreeing, even though we may not have the same reason for agreeing. And we may come to different conclusions on how we think we get there, but then we can unite on that and we can solve these problems. So I think it's a really important consideration. Um, jumping into this one, he talks about what really is going to drive containment. And I, you'll see, like many things, I agree with it. The why is different and I think there's more to it, but check it out. Are you optimistic now that we'll, we'll get it? Because the same incentives are at play with climate change and AI. You know, why would I want to reduce my carbon emissions when it's making loads of money? Or, why, you know, why would I want to reduce my AI development when it's going to make us 15 trillion? Yeah. So the, the, the really painful answer to that question is that we've only really ever driven extreme compromise and consensus in two scenarios. One, off the back of unimaginable catastrophe and suffering, you know, Hiroshima, Nagasaki and the Holocaust and World War II, which drove 10 years of consensus and new political structures, right? And then the second is... Um, we did fire the bullet though, didn't we? We fired a couple of those nuclear bombs. Exactly. And that, that's why I'm saying the brutal truth of that is that it takes a catastrophe to trigger the need for alignment, right? So that, that's one. The second is where there is an obvious mutually assured destruction, um, you know, dynamic where both parties are afraid that this would trigger nuclear meltdown, right? And that means- Okay, so with this one, um, what I agree with on here on so many ends is that, yeah, over the course of human history, he is spot on. I mean, if you really look at what has driven global alignment and things like that, it's when there's either just something catastrophic or- mutually assured destruction. That's usually the kind of, and it's tragic, to be honest, it's tragic that it takes that kind of thing to finally get us to lift our heads and go, you know, maybe instead of hating on each other so much, we should work together to figure this out. 
And I see where the world's going right now. And so often it's like, man, what is it going to take before we realize that if we don't start looking at what we have mutually in common, we're going to, it's, we're going to do horrible things and have to come back. Now, the thing with that is this opens up a third option. If you think about it this way, yeah, there's mutually assured destruction and there's catastrophe or, or there's the choice of dying to ourselves. Now, you can probably guess where my worldview would lead me to this conclusion that that is option three, is to die to ourselves and be self-sacrificial and say, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice myself, even if the people around me go, idiot, you know, I'll, I'll do, I'm going to take advantage of that. Well, then you will, because my hope isn't in you. My hope isn't in myself. My hope is in something bigger there. So we can either be forced there or we can go willingly. The problem with the first two is bad fuel ends up burning you up. And so when I look at, you know, mutually assured destruction, even that it's better fuel than catastrophe. But even that is like, well, then we basically all have to agree like, well, we're all going to be annihilated if we don't deal with this. So I guess that leads to compliance. That's why I still would say that burns us up because it leads to this compliance mindset of what's the minimum viable thing that I have to do to get us across the line just to be sure we don't destroy each other versus going, hey, you know what? If we all consciously choose to die to ourselves for the benefit of others, man, what a better world that would be, right? If we all just consciously made that choice, can you imagine? Now, the sad part is in a secular world, perhaps mutually assured destruction is a far better outcome than catastrophe. And that is a common theme that it's why I appreciate some of these conversations that are bubbling up is the fact that we are having more of this dialogue around it and saying, you know what, I guess maybe us all being annihilated isn't the desire that we want. And maybe we should just all hold hands. And if that gets us compliance, compliance is certainly better than catastrophe, but I would advocate there's a third option and that's the better option. But for now, we'll see how that plays out. All right. So this one, he talks about needing to do the right thing, which again, you can guess, I've got some very strong alignment behind this, but I'll talk about it from just a natural law standpoint. So here we go. That's a really interesting, I think, an important new direction. It's a new evolution in corporate structure because it says we have a responsibility to proactively do our best to do the right thing, right? And I think that if, if you were a tobacco company back in the day or an oil company back in the day, and your legal charter said that your directors are liable if they don't meet the criteria of stewarding your work in a way that doesn't just optimize profit, which is what all companies are incentivized to do at the moment, talking about incentives, but actually in equal measure attends to the importance of doing good in the world. To me, that's a incremental but important innovation in how we organize society and how we incentivize our work. So it doesn't solve everything. It's, it's, it's not a panacea. But that's my effort to try and take a small step in the right direction. Do you have a guess? Okay. So with this one, again, I agree that there is a desperate need for the evolution of the corporate structure. There is a desperate need for us to change the way companies do things, the way they operate, 
the way that happens. And again, his point of, right. I appreciate he acknowledges too. Like, is that the be all end all solution to everything? No. Going back to before he recognizes, is that the savior of the world? No, but is it very much needed? And I agree with it. It mirrors what I'm seeing in other workplace trends, not just related to AI. You know, we have a need, um, we have a need for this in all corporate structure to be able to proactively do the right thing. And everyone wins when we do it. I also appreciate how he calls out addressing it through incentivization. The reality is people do what they're incentivized to do. I see this all the time in HR. We can say these are our corporate values. We can say this is what whatever. But at the end of the day, what really drives what people end up doing is what their bosses drive them to do and what they're paid or incentivized to do. And so I appreciate how he says, hey, we've, we've got to figure that out. And earlier he gives examples of taxation or we need to do other things to try and drive some of that. My concern around his point about doing the right thing, and I think this is where we need healthy debate on this is, again, it's a theme I've said before, who's defining the right thing? Who gets to make that call? Because the reality is most people are not consciously setting out for nefarious purposes. Most people are not thinking to themselves, you know what, I want to destroy others. I want to destroy the world around me. They don't think they're doing that. But it's saying the road to hell is paved with good intentions plays out far too often. Now, believe it or not, I actually think it's foolish for Christians to go and try and make arguments about this in a secular setting. You know, we need to argue from natural law. We can be driven by what's driving us, but where those biblical principles play out. But I don't necessarily think showing up and trying to argue for these kinds of things. Well, the Bible says this, or the Bible says that. Yeah. Okay, fine. But can you represent that? Well, just through other examples of where we've seen this play out. And I think this is why we also need to encourage diversity of thought. I've said this before. You know, I think some people have this idea who were, and it's not just Christians. I think other, it's easy for people to buy into this. If people just thought like me, then everything would be okay. And that goes back to what I said before. <laughs> you're a terrible God. Like you're a terrible God. You would, we all are. That's not just me pointing the finger. We all are. And so we need this diversity of thought when going through this exercise of diverse perspectives. This whole ideology of my way is superior and anybody else is wrong is doing way more damage than good. And quite frankly saying, well, we should do, we all should do the right thing because the Bible says so. To me, it's lazy. It's lazy to make statements like that. But do I agree 100%? Yes. Would where I'm coming from differ than Mustafa and potentially Stephen? Yeah, probably. But I think we could align around that. And then we have a healthy discussion on, so how do we define what the right thing is? And how do we learn and adapt along the way? Because going back to something I said before, you're not going to find a chapter and verse that tells you. And here's the decision we should make around how we govern this artificial intelligence model. You're not going to find it. So we're going to have to use wisdom and discernment uh, as we go through and bring in different perspectives. Okay. Second to last one, and then I'll wrap this up, is this question around, will AI enslave us? Will we ultimately become slaves to AI. So listen to what they have to say, and then I'll give my thoughts on this. We have become accustomed to being. We are going to live in an epoch where the majority of our daily interactions are not with other people, but with AIs. Page 284 of your book. 
the last page. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Think about how much of your day you spend looking at a screen. 12 hours. Pretty much, right? Whether it's a phone or an iPad or a desktop versus how much time you spend looking into the eyes of your friends and your loved ones. And so to me, it's like, we're already there in a way. You know, what I meant by that was, you know, this is a world that we're kind of already in. You know, the last three years, people have been talking about metaverse, metaverse, metaverse. And the mischaracterization of the metaverse was that it's over there. It was this like virtual world that we would all bop around in and talk to each other as these little characters. And, but that was totally wrong. That was a complete misframing. The metaverse is already here. It's okay. So with this one, he goes on to talk about this, but the point that I want to make is that going back to some of the fear around this stuff, there's a lot of fear around, well, is AI going to take over? Are we going to become obsessed? Are we going to become slaves to artificial intelligence? How much, how is that going to happen in all of this? And I love how he hit on the fact like, yeah, we're already there. And our technology is already consuming us. We are already slaves to this stuff today. So the fear of, well, will an AI model enslave us? I mean, I guess what's your definition of slavery? And again, I completely align with his line of thinking because you know what? People become to slaves to all types of things. And AI is, it's absolutely going to add new opportunities for us to, become subservient to some, you know, technology and maybe unwillingly, eh, I would say we will probably will sign ourselves up for it and not even realize we're doing it. I mean, at the end of the day, we all serve different masters, money, popularity, numbing ourselves to the reality of things. The God of the Bible, obviously I'm going to advocate for that, but not in an oversimplistic way. But even within, you look at the story of the Bible, I mean, even the Israelites and modern Christians, we still struggle with this. So this is a real vulnerability area. And so this idea of, will AI be the thing that does it? I think is the wrong question to be asking because it's like, well, hey, where are the vulnerabilities in your life today? Where are you a slave to things? You know, whether it's the, the activities of your kid's sports schedules, your boss who wants you up at every hour of the day responding. I mean, wh where is that happening? Not your phone. You can't get off your phone. Where are those addictions? Where are those things that you're trapped that you don't see? You may not be aware of. And I think that's an exercise that everyone can self-examine and say, hmm, where am I hooked on something? Where am I serving something? And I'm not really in control of it. And how, where can I be proactive in doing something about it? Or is it going to take what they talked about earlier? Is it going to take mutually assured destruction or absolute catastrophe for you finally to go, I need to do something about this? Are you going to have to hit rock bottom or be threatened of having everything taken from you before you go, whoa, I'm serving the wrong master type of a thing. Um, and I hope that people take the opportunity to do that self-reflection, that hard work before, because like I said, AI is going to open up massive new opportunities to be distracted, to be consumed, to be beholden 
to something, that's, there's no denying that. That to me is an inevitability. It's coming. It is. And so if you're already on shaky ground, if you're already hooked on these other things, is AI going to add a level of it that will make it even harder to break, even harder to step away from? You better believe it. And so obviously, yeah, is my advocation going to be, hey, so put your trust, put your hope in something that is different, is better. Uh, because if you don't, it's going to be a whole lot harder to break free from this stuff in the future. So, uh, but I, but the point secular, take the theological discussion off the table. What Mustafa is getting at, I think is something we universally can agree on, no matter what your worldview is, which is, Hey, you're probably hooked on something and don't really want to acknowledge it. You know, if you turn on screen time, how much time are you really surfing? How much time are you doing these things? How much time are you consumed with not even just technology? Like I said, could be your kid's sports team, could be a hobby you have. Where are those idols in your life? Um, because that's really what you should be doing as part of your regular activity. You don't need to wait for AI to show up to do that. Okay. The last and final before concluding is his advice. Stephen asked him his advice to his kids and you listen to it. You can probably guess what my reaction to it's going to be, but here, check it out. Your kids come to you. You got kids? No, I don't have kids. Your future kids. If you ever have kids, a young child walks up to you <laughs> and says, asks that question that Elon was asked. What should I do about with my future? What should I pursue in the light of everything you know about how our artificial intelligence is going to change the world and computational power and all of these things. What should I dedicate my life to? What do you say? I would say knowledge is power. Embrace, understand, grapple with the consequences. Don't look the other way when it feels scary and do everything you can to understand and participate and shape because it is coming. Okay. So final thoughts on this one. And that is, I absolutely agree with the things he is saying are good things. They're absolutely good things. Um, it is good for us to lean in to what's uncomfortable. It's good for us to increase our knowledge. It's good for us to recognize that bad things will happen and they can and they will. And how do we be prepared for that? But I think he stopped short and I think it's incomplete. Um, the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of leaning into uncomfortable conversations, or if you could just get to a level of knowledge or understanding that's high enough, eventually you'll just reach nirvana. It's going to be a very disappointing pursuit. And you've heard me say this in many, many other areas. I think the pursuit of the things he described can absolutely be good, but they don't belong in first place. And I think placing those things in first place and believing that. So for me, if I were to be asked, hey, well, what would you tell your kids how to prepare for what's coming with AI? It wouldn't be up your knowledge. I, I, that would be some of the advice. To me, that wouldn't be the leading thing. And again, ties to so much of probably the differences of where we're coming at from things along the way. So is knowledge the solution? It's part of a solution, but it's an incomplete one. So with that, um, I hope you found this 
breakdown. It's so funny. The video itself is an hour and 46 minutes, the interview itself. And my debrief of it is almost spot on with that. So this isn't an abbreviated version. I didn't intend it to be because for me, it was about unpacking some of the depth and the quality of what's in here and looking at it through a different lens and bringing a different perspective. So I just want to close out by saying, Hey, you need to be aware you need to actively participate in discussions and things like this. You need to be thinking and figuring out what your contribution is to the future. And that's not just specific to AI. We all play a role in making the world a better place. And we all can play an active role in that if we choose to. I know for me, I continue to lay down on you know, what mine is, whether it's videos like this, whether it's other things. So go out, learn, figure out where your life intersects with this stuff. Prepare for a disruptive future. Don't fear it, but respect it and acknowledge it's there because it's going to be a wild ride and we are going to make some major mistakes along the way. And I wouldn't be doing uh, you a service. I wouldn't be doing it you kindness if I didn't say, if you haven't checked out the greatest story of all time that radically has changed my life and shapes my worldview, which you've heard throughout here, it's at least worth a look. And I will leave it at that. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week and we will see you on the other side.